Hello. Welcome to another podcast from Reflux UK. I'm Nick Boyle, consultant surgeon and founder. One of my favourite factoids is that, published by the renowned economist Michael Porter, who suggested many years ago now that the average time taken for a new technology in medicine to be universally adapted, having been validated in peer-reviewed journals, is no less than 17 years. It's extraordinary to me that although what is today called SIBU, or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, was first described decades ago, and in 2021, despite this, many doctors haven't even heard of it. There's an ongoing debate and even argument as to its clinical importance, and there's significant disagreement about how to test and diagnose the condition, and even more on how and even whether to treat it. However, over the last decade, our understanding of the importance of our natural gastrointestinal biome, all the billions of microorganisms that we all have naturally living within our guts, has grown enormously. Almost certainly, there remains far more unknown than known, but we now have very strong evidence that SIBU is probably far more common than previously thought, and that colonization of the small bile by microorganisms, which is usually relatively sterile, is associated with all sorts of symptoms and even significant illness. It's becoming increasingly clear that understanding SIBU is fundamental to clinicians seeing and treating patients with symptoms originating in the esophagus and stomach, as it clearly causes symptoms that can be easily mistaken for other diseases, such as gastroesophageal reflux. The internet is packed with sites offering all sorts of often conflicting advice on diets, natural antibiotics, probiotics, prebiotics, antibiotics. SIBU is certainly central to the current zeitgeist that we are what lives in our guts, but what to believe. So today we're going to try and unpack what we know about SIBU. And to do this, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome three acknowledged world experts. Dr. Mark Pimental is Professor of Medicine at the Geffen School of Medicine and Associate Professor at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, California. Dr. Pimental has served as a principal investigator or co-investigator for numerous basic science translation on clinical studies in the relationship between gut flora composition and human diseases. His work has been published in the New England Journal of Medicine, Annals of Internal Medicine, and the American Journal of Medicine, to name but three amongst many. He's an international speaker and acknowledged as one of, if not the world's expert on SIBU. Among his most significant contributions to science and medicine are the discovery of Rifaximin, which is an antibiotic as a treatment for irritable bowel syndrome, the development of the first blood test for irritable bowel syndrome on the basis of IBS being derived from acute gastroenteritis. He described the association between irritable bowel syndrome or IBS with, and bacterial overgrowth. And he described the methane producing organism that causes constipation in humans. So Mark, welcome and thank you very much indeed for joining us today. Dr. Anthony Hobson is a GI clinical scientist and clinical director of the Functional Gut Clinic. He's also chair of the Association of GI Physiologists in the UK, which oversees and contributes to establishing and improving clinical standards and guidelines in GI diagnostic testing as part of the British Society of Gastroenterology. He and his team see about 
4,000 patients every year with suspected SIBO and are involved in performing diagnostic tests or more patients with gastroesophageal symptoms than any other centre in the UK. He and I have worked together for years and collaborate on research projects, and we recently published a study linking reflux symptoms to SIBU in patients considering undergoing anti-reflux surgery. So, Anthony, welcome. Dr. Ali Reza is the medical director of the Gastrointestinal Motility Program at Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles. He also serves as the Director of Bioengineering and Bioinformatics at the Medically Associated Science and Technology Program at Cedars-Sinai. And additionally, he's Associate Professor at Cedars and Clinical Associated Professor at UCLA. He is an expert in gastrointestinal motility disorders and inflammatory bowel disease. And his research interests primarily involve irritable bowel syndrome and the GAT microbiome. He's authored and co-authored more than 100 peer-reviewed publications, and his work has been cited over 6,000 times by other scientific peer-reviewed journals. So, Ali, uh, welcome. And indeed, all three of you gentlemen, we're delighted to have you here today. So, I think what we'll do to start with is just try and define what is normal. Everybody's heard about the microbiome. I think these days everybody's aware that parts of our gut contain uh, literally billions of microorganisms. But perhaps what people don't quite understand is that different parts of the gut uh, have different concentrations of bacteria and different compositions and types of, of other organisms as well as bacteria as well. So, Mark, perhaps I could start with you. Perhaps you could just define what is normal um, and what protects those parts of the gut, which usually are relatively sterile, from becoming uh, overgrown by those microbes organisms. It's great to be uh, talking with you today. Um, you know, what is normal? I mean, this is still a question, believe it or not. You know, we, we, the Human Microbiome Project emerged, and everybody was very excited about what the prospects of finding a bug and associating it with a disease. This was back in 2006, 2007. Fast forward to 2021, we still don't have a single bug, single disease entity, and we're still defining normal because each person is their own normal in terms of stool. But the problem with the Human Microbiome Project is they said, well, the stool, we now know what's in there and that's the gut, but that's not the gut because the small intestine, the largest segment of your intestinal tract, 15 to 20 feet long versus the five feet of colon was not part of the analysis. We now know based on work we've been doing is that the small intestinal microbiome is completely and utterly different from the colon. So you can't use stool to determine what's going on in the small bowel. And the other you know, aspect of normal in, in the context of this conversation today with SIBO is that tradition had it that SIBO was first described in patients post-surgical procedures back in the 50s, 60s. And those patients were dramatically affected by the surgical alterations that were created. And so there was a cutoff that was said, well, if you're more than 100,000 bacteria per milliliter, that's SIBO. But what we now know is normals are never more than 1,000. So we actually reset the normal range for the small intestine as 1,000 because that is the correct normal range. And, and so now we're starting to understand normal really just now for the first time. But the small intestine, I think, was your, the point of your second part of your question is what keeps the bacteria in check? And there's a lot of things. Stomach acid uh, prevents certain bacteria from getting through to the small bowel. The pancreas juices, digestive juices, bile 
keeps things uh, regulated in the small bowel. Of course, your immune system of the gut does so as well. But there's a really, really important motility mechanism, which is the migrating motor complex. The migrating motor complex is a cleaning way. Think of it as a dishwasher. So your small bowel is your plate, and this dishwasher comes through every 90 minutes when you're not eating and cleans up the meal, gets rid of all the junk, and sweeps it into the colon. And if you don't have that, the bacteria start to go awry. So, Mark, that's really clear. What, what you're saying is that um, normally we eat, when we eat, we, we ingest lots of bugs from our uh, throats and mouths and in the food that we eat. It tends to get sterilized in the stomach by acid and the other components that you talked about. But potentially, if that mechanism fails, then you can get colonization of the small bowel, which comes directly after the stomach, which is normally uh, relatively devoid of bugs. So, Ali, perhaps you can just build on that and tell us what happens if you do start getting colonization of the, of the small bowel by microorganisms. What is the pathophysiology of the problems which that can then cause? Yeah, that's a great question. Having, uh, having colonic bacteria inside the small bowel or vice versa is not necessarily healthy. So when the colonic bacteria migrate into the small bowel and you have overgrowth of these bacteria inside the small bowel, the way they act is that when we eat, when the food enters the small bowel, then the whole part of the nutrient spectrum is not necessarily gets absorbed by us. It's rather some part of it gets absorbed by the bacteria. And when bacteria uh, digest the food inside the small bowel, then they produce a lot of side products and also they ferment the food. When they ferment the food, they produce gas and this gas can be hydrogen, can be methane, carbon dioxide, hydrogen sulfide, and that leads to excessive amount of gas inside the small bowel. This also happens in the colon as well, but when it happens in the small bowel, it becomes a bigger problem because the small bowel is not really equipped to handle an intraluminal gas. On top of all that, they also produce a lot of side products. And these side products, now we know that the bacteria inside the gut can produce anything uh, that we can think of. In fact, through the evolution, we have learned from them how to produce all these uh, hormones and proteins. Now we know that they produce sex hormones, such as estrogen, progesterone. We know that they produce other uh, transmitters, such as serotonin. Uh, they produce uh, histamine. And all these can affect the motility of the gut, uh, they can uh, affect the way we uh, sense uh, inside our gut and uh, changes the balance and also the movement of the gut, which collectively leads to uh, symptoms of bloating, distension, abdominal discomfort, and all the whole spectrum of IBS like symptoms. So that's, that's really fascinating. So there are some mechanical issues, but there are also lots of, uh, of problems caused by the abnormal byproducts of these bugs which are living in the gut. And you mentioned IBS. Mark, I mean, there is this debate, isn't there? And you, you of course, have been seminal in working out the connection between IBS and, uh, and, and Cebu. And certainly, I think there's a lot of confusion still. There's an awful lot of people told they've got IBS when maybe they've got Cebu. Perhaps you can just give us a little bit of an insight in, into the connection between the two. So, uh, you know, I, I honestly, I don't understand the, the debate about IBS and SIBO. I mean, this has been going on, the research in this has been going on for 20 years. 
So initially, breath testing was done and described that IBS patients are positive on breath tests more than healthy controls. And so there was a suggestion that small intestinal bacterial overgrowth was present in IBS. And so critics said, well, you know, the breath test may not be completely accurate. Maybe you're not really seeing SIBO, but it's something else. Maybe it's transit. And so then culture studies came out, and there was a study by a Swedish group uh, led by Passerud, a study by Pilaris, and those two culture studies showed definitively that IBS had more coliforms in their small bowel than healthy controls. And the critics say, well, you know, but maybe if we had more modern techniques, we'd be more accurate. And so now we have sequencing studies that show that IBS patients have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And in fact, up to 60% of IBSD is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth now based on breath test, based on culture, and based on sequencing. And in 2020, all of this data over 20 years was in, in a paper that culminated in all the work a meta-analysis by Shaw and Nick Talley from Australia and shows definitively that if you summarize all the studies ever done on breath testing, SIBO is part of IBS. If you summarize all the culture data, SIBO is part of IBS. There is an overwhelming amount of evidence of SIBO part of IBS, not to mention that IBS patients respond to antibiotics, which is the treatment for SIBO, and that breath testing predicts the response in IBS patients, meaning SIBO. And, and yet, here we are still debating it. It really makes no sense. That I can sense the frustration in, in what you've just said, which is a frustration shared by uh, many people across the world. Maybe I can just ask you, Anthony, I mean, what do you think the reason for that is in the UK? Because we'll come back perhaps and ask the, our American friends in a minute what has changed in the United States. But I think we're rather behind, even further behind the curve here, aren't we? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm... Equally baffled as Mark, <clears throat> you know, it's been described recently at a kind of national committee level as a, a toxic subject, uh, SIBO. And my feeling was that, you know, quite rightly, the physicians really didn't want people to be on a cycle of uncontrolled antibiotic use, you know, because of, of the other effects, the collateral effects that that might have. But actually, in the uh, guidelines for diarrhea from the BSG, they said, don't use breath testing, just treat patients empirically with antibiotics. So, you know, it, it kind of doesn't make sense whether this is a, I, I don't know whether it's a political, it doesn't seem to be a scientific debate, but it, it evokes very, very strong reactions. And there's a camp of people who pragmatically think this, this exists as an important, but there's also a camp that are so negative about this that they tend to shout the loudest and actually are really stifling debate, uh, the debate and stifling progress certainly in the UK. And I think, uh, you know, Mark has, has also encountered that. And, and, and as Mark said, the exasperation is, it really doesn't make sense. In every other factor of, of my clinical experience, we look at the data, we look at the science, we look at the evidence, and then we balance it. Uh, and we also consider the patients. Yeah. You know, the last thing here is, is that there are patients out there that are suffering really quite horrible symptoms, and they're just being ignored in the healthcare system. So ultimately, we don't understand, but I think we still keep producing the data, producing the science, improving the techniques, and showing from clinical trials and randomized controlled trials, as Mark has done, that this is a safe and efficacious treatment, and patients get better. And actually, the thing that really frustrates me is people with IBS are told that it's a lifelong condition. And I think in a lot of patients with IBS, that um, certainly you can significantly improve the condition. And I know Mark believes that you, know, you can actually cure that condition in, in, a, in a proportion of people. So 
we're a bit more optimistic and hopeful for the future, but we've just got to keep producing the data and being objective about it. Okay, so that, that's a, it's, it's a very frustrating, I think, for many patients that they they don't necessarily get access to the tests and treatment that they they feel they should should get. But let's just go a little bit back to the presentation. So Ali, earlier on, we talked a little bit about bloating and belching and wind. And obviously, patients with diagnosed with IBS might have constipation, they might have diarrhea. And I think recently as well, people are understanding that, that, that you know, if you're getting a lot of belching and, and bloating, that that can also present with with heartburn and regurgitation and symptoms which can mimic gastroesophageal reflux, so it can it can it can masquerade as all sorts of different uh, other conditions, can't it? If you're confronted with a patient that you think might have SIBU, how do you go about testing? How do you you go about actually validating whether they've got SIBU? And, and just tell us a little bit about what that involves and what the what the debate around around that those tests are. When you have a patient with suspected bacterial overgrowth, the, as you mentioned, the spectrum of, of potential symptoms and signs that you can see is very broad. And in fact, there are very good studies to show that based on symptoms alone, uh, because the symptoms are non-specific, and generally in GI world, the symptoms are very non-specific, it's very hard to differentiate who has SIBO and who doesn't. And we have good evidence that just by clinical presentation, you can't tell who has SIBO, who doesn't have SIBO. So because of that, you need a, an objective test to see whether a patient has, that, uh, has SIBO or not. Otherwise, you can't really just empirically treat everybody just uh, purely based on uh, clinical symptoms. So the way I uh, do it in the clinic, if I have a suspected a patient with bacterial overgrowth, which, as, as, you said, as you said, can be a wide spectrum of patients with uh, non-specific GI symptoms, is that I go about and do lactulose uh, breath testing. Now, a glucose breath testing is also uh, another uh, acceptable choice, uh, but I start with uh, lactulose uh, breath testing. So the way it works is that uh, you go on a bland diet the day before, and uh, and that's essentially to prime the uh, uh, and standardize the amount of gas that you're producing on the day. You won't uh, eat anything after midnight. Again, that's to decrease the amount of gas. And you're allowed to have uh, some water. So when you come in, we uh, measure the, uh, the breath uh, gases, uh, and that includes hydrogen, methane, carbon dioxide, and hydrogen sulfide. These gases are produced by a gut microbiome, especially, uh, specifically speaking, for hydrogen and methane. These are exclusively uh, produced by gut microbiome. So anything that we find in our breath with these gases are produced for your gut, and our body doesn't produce it. We also measure carbon dioxide to just adjust for the amount of uh, dilution in the gas. Uh, but the, uh, the important gases are the hydrogen, methane, and uh, hydrogen sulfide. They measure it at baseline, and then we give uh, lactulose, and lactulose is a sugar, and bacteria generally like a ver uh, the uh, sugar substrate very much, and they start to ferment uh, the sugar as it goes throughout the small bowel. And some of this gas dissipates into the bloodstream and reaches uh, the lungs, and then you breathe it out, and that's when we measure these gases. And based on that, uh, we now have an idea of whether a patient has bacterial overgrowth. And more importantly, this test clues us in how to treat patients. So it's not just the diagnostic test, it also tailors the individualized treatment uh, for patients that we strive to do in any disease. 
it's it's 2021 just empiric therapy i don't think is an acceptable goal we need individualized treatment uh, for each patient so mark you know the, these tests are reasonably widely available how accurate are they and because this is i think part of the other debate isn't it that uh, a lot of uh, gastroenterologists say well there's no point using these tests because they're just not accurate enough you know what, what's your feeling on that well w- one of the capstone projects that we uh, published last summer was to compare breath testing and compare it to culture and compare it to symptoms and compare it to deep sequencing in the small bowel and the final piece which i'll get to which is the cherry on top but what we showed is that if you do a breath test and you use lactulose, which is our preferred substrate, the specificity is between 80 and 90% for proving that bacterial over the growth is there compared to the culture, which is considered the gold standard. But it also compared very favorably to sequencing and the bugs that we now know cause SIBO are E. coli and Klebsiella, and those were uh, predicted by the breath test. It also predicted symptoms, but the most important thing, and this this is the thing that kind of gets to me when, when people talk about SIBO. They say, well, the hydrogen is coming because the lactulose is getting to the colon, and the colon bacteria are so many that they're producing the hydrogen. Based on our study, that's not true, uh, because we actually showed in that study that the juice of the small bowel, the metabol- metabolome, which metabolome means what the bug's processes are, we saw upregulated processes for hydrogen production in the patients where the breath test was positive who had overgrowth. So the hydrogen is actually, in fact, contrary to critics, coming from the small intestine. This is a very pivotal trial that really kind of nails the final nail in the coffin, in my view. But, you know, people want more nails. And so, you know, we, we've got a test which is pretty predictive for being able to say whether people have got SIBO or not, which is relatively straightforward to do. As Ali explained earlier on, it just involves eating a sugary solution, which is digested by the bacteria and produces a a gas. You blow into some bottles and you then send it back to the lab. And so it's pretty straightforward. Just give us an idea. I mean, how many people potentially have the studies suggested have got SIBO, which potentially is causing symptoms troublesome enough for them to warrant treatment. Have we got any idea? Look, I mean, this is not cancer, so I understand that this is not a life-threatening condition. But I want you, want you to think of what the patient experiences, okay? The patient, these patients, they're sitting on a train, and now it's suddenly they have diarrhea and bloating. They're just about to get on an airplane. They've buckled themselves in, and the, they say, okay, make sure your seat belts are fastened. We're now going to the runway, and they have to go to the bathroom, and they can't hold it. I mean, these patients are traumatized by the degree of symptoms that they have. My point is, our treatments for SIBO are safe. The test is super easy and non-invasive and not expensive. And so if a patient has the opportunity for benefit where they don't have to suffer the experiences that I just described to you because you actually are treating the cause, why? what would be the hesitation? I think it's very simple to do the test and very simple to treat. And and on the notion of antibiotics and the antibiotic stewardship, I agree. You know, I'm in that line of antibiotic stewardship. Hence, rifaximin. Rifaximin doesn't create resistance. It works on a different mechanism. It doesn't get absorbed. It's not related to any other antibiotic you use for anything else. 
And so, you know, in general, rifaximin has been a, a very preferred drug. But the notion that a doctor would empirically treat, let, let's just touch on that because you mentioned that earlier, flagyl, metronidazole, use the, the generic term, metronidazole is the top antibiotic in the textbooks for gastroenterology for treating uh, overgrowth. Metronidazole has the chance of getting rid of overgrowth of about 20%. Of all the antibiotics we've ever studied, metronidazole is absolutely the worst as a single agent and yet is the first antibiotic they reach for, and I know because I have colleagues in the UK, this is often the antibiotic that the colleague, my colleagues in the UK reach for first because it's inexpensive. But with a 20% chance of having the patient benefit, of course you're not going to think SIBO's there. Because if you have to treat five patients to get one better, you're going to imagine SIBO doesn't exist because you have to treat five patients to find one that might have SIBO because you think C uh, metronidazole is the the, the nirvana treatment. It's not. But if you take rifaximin, if four out of five respond or three out of five respond, then you're starting to say, okay, there's something here. And I think all of that is part of the, the problem. We don't have this problem in the U.S., by the way, and I know we sort of touched on that. The U.S. is doing breath tests quite a lot, and, and the notion of SIBO is very well built uh, or at least uh, adopted here. But Europe and the U.K. Are, are still a little behind on this story. I, just before we get back onto the treatment, because I, I, I think um, you, you've obviously talked about rifaximin, I'd like to explore that a little bit further in a minute. I think a, a lot of there's a, a, a lot of associations with other conditions have been described. There's a lot of patients who read stuff on the internet that says where their polymyalgia rheumatica must be associated with their SIBU or whatever it is, and it just give us a, an idea of what we really do know about non-gastrointestinal manifestations of SIBU. What other problems can SIBU cause? Yeah, so obviously that's a field that is uh, up and coming and multiple studies are uh, looking into that. But uh, some examples that I'm going to bring up, study that, for example, done uh, by Dr. Rao, that he explored the concept of fatigue and also brain fog. Very commonly, we hear from SIBO patients that after eating, they feel like uh, they're, 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 their mental liquidity has been affected. They feel like uh, they feel foggy. And what Dr. Uh, Rao showed that, for example, in those patients, if you treat them with a course of antibiotics, and in the subgroup of patients, if you stop the probiotics, the symptoms improve uh, significantly, which is, again, an extra-intestinal manifestation of gut uh, microbiome as uh, you're stopping the probiotics and also you're treating it with uh, antibiotics uh, and then symptoms uh, improve. There are other associations that, uh, in fact, uh, we're more and more understanding. You can go all the way to, for example, dermatological disorders. Uh, so uh, rosacea has been associated with bacterial overgrowth. This is to a point that dermatologists uh, consider uh, even rifaximin, and there's some data on that for treatment of, of rosacea. There is a study that just came out that correlated uh, outcomes of heart failure patients uh, with uh, bacterial uh, overgrowth that was uh, just recently published in the cardiology uh, uh, journals. So there are multiple uh, associations out there, and we're learning fatty liver. Uh, there is some data that is uh, showing that uh, bacterial overgrowth can be associated with non-alcoholic fatty liver, which is when the fat starts to deposit in the liver. 
so uh, the possibilities are new, uh, numerous, and more and more we're understanding this is because what bacteria produce as a side product, known and unknown factors, and this is a field that is here to stay, and more and more uh, we will uh, understand how to treat not just GI, GI disorders, non-GI disorders and healthy patients with it. So it truly is fascinating, isn't it? And, and again, I don't think we've got time to start talking about leaky gut and the concept of leaky gut today. But clearly, Cebu can influence every organ in the body, it seems, and, and, can, and can manifest itself in a whole host of different ways, which we have yet to fully understand. And finally, before we get back to treating, Mark, I'd just like to come a little bit back to the causes of Cebu, because... You, you mentioned a little bit earlier about it being described earlier on in patients who'd had gastrointestinal surgery and had had their GI tract altered, which, you know, it could affect uh, the way the gut motility worked or lead to blind then pouches and stuff like that. But I, I think, you know, there are some other clearly described potential causes in terms of diet, in terms of drugs. And I'd like to just touch a little bit on PPIs as well. So just give us a sort of a headline of what you think the main potential causes for an otherwise fit and healthy person for developed Cebu is? So one of the things we, we mentioned very early in the podcast, just glazing over it a little bit, is that it, the small bowel in terms of SIBO, the reason the bacteria build up is because of poor flow. And so if the, if the small bowel is flowing freely and the motility is working correctly, the small bowel is relatively clean. Remember, again, that's your plate. And one of the primary mechanisms for SIBO that we understand now is a lack of migrating motor complex. I'll get back to that, but, but there's so many other things. For example, opiate use uh, impairs the migrating motor complex and impairs motility and is a common cause of SIBO. Adhesions, anything that causes stasis, malabsorption conditions, so if your pancreas doesn't produce enzymes, uh, then you're going to have problems with even digesting bacteria, because these enzymes can break bacteria as well. And so that can cause SIBO. And of course, you mentioned gastric acid, but stomach acid and, and being on antacid medications such as proton pump inhibitors, we actually proved just recently that that doesn't cause SIBO. Uh, that is, uh, again, maybe another myth. And, and the reason why it doesn't, we don't understand. We, we do see specific microbiome changes from PPI use, but not SIBO. But we understand for IBS, we understand almost the entire mechanistic process. We now know, and, and food poisoning is the is the starting point, and that was discovered by this, the group from Nottingham, actually, uh, Robin Spiller's group, and I understand he's now retired, sadly, but brilliant scientist there. And, and we know food poisoning actually, through certain toxin, leads to an autoimmune condition of the gut. The gut then slows down. And when the gut slows down, you get small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. We've worked out that entire mechanism for IBS, for produce, production of IBS diarrhea. And so that, that is the mechanism of SIBO in irritable bowel syndrome. It's obvious that there are all sorts of reasons for the development of SIBO. And I guess it's also likely that there are lots of mechanisms we haven't really as yet identified. And I suppose, Anthony, just to come to you quickly, I mean, we recently published a, a study which looked at patients with reflux symptoms presenting, well, presenting potentially to have surgery for, for reflux and found they had SIBU, didn't we? Do you want to just tell us a little bit about that? Again, an, an interesting process, really, where you've got people who have been on long-term antacid medication, and the purpose of the study was not to look at the world of PPIs and, and SIBO. 
But it was really to see that these people with PPI refractory symptoms, how common it is for them to have SIBO. And we found that about 60% of them either had SIBO or increased hydrogen or methane mix. And of course, you, Nick, as a surgeon, what we've worked so well together is, is trying to find the right patients for you to operate on. And after anti-reflux surgery, one of the main symptoms was gas bloat syndrome. And, you know, the, the other interesting thing that we found was that the um, gas production and, and, and SIBO presence was correlated quite strongly with symptoms of heartburn and regurgitation on the 24-hour pH testing. So what you've got in these patients is they've got a different type of reflux. And the reflux is being exacerbated by the um, dysbiosis. So whether that's you know, hydrogen, methane, or, or whatever, you've inc- got increased gas from regurgitation. And you know, the question then is, for you, uh, if you operate on them, are they going to have worse symptoms? Or should you treat their, their SIBO first and see if that resolves? And then if you still have reflux, should you then do the anti-reflux procedure? So as I said, we, we have never done any prospective work on, on PPIs like Mark has done. But, you know, this is just a group of patients who gastroenterologists have, have endoscoped, who've given lots and lots of PPIs to, who have then been referred to you for surgery. And what they've not done is actually investigate this as a potential mechanism. So, you know, they're prepared to refer for surgery, but not potentially for investigating SIBO, which, again, is a, a little bit frustrating. Yeah, and I think, I think that's exactly right. I mean, uh, what I was saying was not really contradicting that. I think what we what we showed is that the PPI in and of itself is not the SIBO indicator, it's the reflux, and that the patients have reflux because the cause of reflux is intra-abdominal pressure greater than intrathoracic pressure and greater than the valve or the esophageal uh, sphincter valve. So if you have uh, SIBO, and we showed this in a factor analysis, particularly with methanogen overgrowth, which I think we'll get to later, is that the pressure in the abdomen is just higher, and as a result, you get reflux. And as a result, somebody puts you on a PPI, but it isn't the medication that's causing the SIBO. It's the fact that the mechanism of action, perhaps, for some individuals with reflux is actually SIBO. And if you treat that, maybe that's the solution, or at least you should treat it before you consider more advanced approaches. So I I certainly endorse what Anthony says, that um, uh, sadly, the lack of more comprehensive testing does mean that we we get an awful lot of patients who are erroneously given the wrong diagnosis. And as you said, often do come forward to have, you know, uh, significant interventions for the wrong reason. But that's a different story. So uh, we talked about how SIBU can occur. We've talked about what the pathogenic mechanisms are, how it can symptomatically present with a whole myriad of different symptoms. So now let's just move on a little bit to how we would treat it. Mark, just start a little bit with diet. I suppose the big question is, can you just manage these patients? Can you just say, well, you know, you've modified your diet a little bit. Maybe you take some, you know, some natural antibiotics, some turmeric or ginger or whatever, but that some people would advocate. Or should you try to eradicate it? Should you take a more, what some people would say, draconian view as to what we do about this, given the fact that we said that there are, you know, significant proportion of the population who have this problem? So what is your what is your approach, firstly, to people who would say, well, you just treat it with diet? Well, I have a slightly skewed population that I see. I see some of the more significantly affected patients. Obviously, if a patient's very mild in terms of their symptoms, diet approaches are, are, are fine. 
uh, one of the diets that's commonly used for irritable bowel syndrome, which has some uh, overlap with what we would do with SIBO since they're essentially one and the same, uh, is that the low FODMAP diet. The problem with the low FODMAP diet, and, and the essence of diets is this, if you eat food in which humans absorb and digest it more rapidly, meaning less residue, less fiber, less things left over, then the bacteria have less to eat and their numbers should diminish. So if you were to eat, for example, glucose, glucose is quickly absorbed. If you were to eat fructose, which is a fruit sugar, humans are struggle with that and it takes more time, then you're going to be more symptomatic with fructose. So that's, I mean, that's just the basic essence of it. But the low FODMAP diet, the challenge with that is it's, it's quite extreme. And, and even the low FODMAP scientists know that after three or four months, you have to start to reintroduce. Here's the challenge that I have, though, with diets and alternative approaches. If you're a patient and you're in an environment where the doctors don't accept the SIBO, then you're doing all of these things because you're trying to self-help. But if you want to get 20% better, those things work. If you want to get 80% better, then you're going to have to take a more tactical approach. And Dr. Rizai was telling me about a patient that flew in to see us in Los Angeles to see him specifically. And one of the comments the patient made was, why did I have to come all the way to Los Angeles for you to tell me I'm taking, I take an antibiotic and why did it work 80% and nobody else knew about it? And this person came from overseas. So, it, you know, if it's a simple approach, easy, no side effects to get 80% improvement, seems to me that would be my, my first approach. But, but diet and other things do help. Diet could help, but as you said, probably majority of people it won't eradicate it won't make a significant difference to uh, to their symptoms and so i think most people in the science would acknowledge the fact that antibiotics are the, the way that you can actually eradicate this problem and get rid of it um so ali just give us a brief synopsis of what the data is on antibiotics mark talked about rifaximin earlier on but just just run through a little bit if you wouldn't mind what what your approach to antibiotic treatment would be our approach to antibiotic uh, therapy is that, first of all, uh, to use the, uh, the antibiotics with the least uh, uh, side effects and the most accepted, uh, uh, acceptable uh, side effect profile, and also effective. So uh, the way I do it is that I do the uh, breath testing, and if patient has hydrogen predominant bacterial overgrowth, the first choice for me would be Rifaxin. Why? Because it's a fully, uh, fully absorbed antibiotic. And what do I mean by that? By that, uh, I mean is that about 99.6% of rifaximin does not get absorbed and it just goes through the gut. So because of that, the, uh, it does not have uh, much of a drug-to-drug interaction. It does not have um, a, a systemic uh, side effects. So that essentially goes in and it uh, helps in the symptoms. And we do have level one evidence on that. So target three trial that had patients with IBS diarrhea uh, subjects, patients who had positive uh, uh, breath test, uh, responded 56% uh, to treatment as opposed to only uh, 22% for subjects who had negative breath test. And that was not just it. Patients who had positive breath test and after refractment therapy, uh, the, uh, symptom, uh, the breath test normalized, their response rate was 75% plus. 
And that's a response rate that we have never seen before in IBS patients. If you look at uh, trials, the response rate is some, uh, usually sitting somewhere between uh, 40 uh, to 45% max. And 77% is, uh, is very higher than uh, any other uh, trial uh, using the uh, robust uh, composite endpoints that FDA uses meaning that you have to have improvement in, in abdominal pain and you have to have improvement in uh, stool consistency together uh, and otherwise you're not considered a responder. So again, that shows uh, one important thing that in uh, subpopulation IBSD patients, SIBO is uh, the, uh, what we need to target to help them and, uh, and make them better. And uh, secondly, if we have a test that diagnoses them, that you can individualize uh, therapy, you can increase the chance of success. And going back to Anthony's point, that uh, then we don't have to empirically treat everybody. So that's the whole sort of premise of that. Now, if rifaximin is not available, uh, other antibiotics can be used. Anecdotally, I can, I can tell you, I uh, sometimes use doxycycline, sometimes use uh, amoxicillin, uh, um, I use amoxicillin plus uh, flavonic acid and uh, superfloxacin. But as you uh, can imagine, because these are systemic uh, antibiotics, you need to be aware of uh, the side effect profile. Now, if patient has excessive methane or excessive methane and hydrogen, that's the time that I uh, use neomycin as well. That's another non-absorbable antibiotic to mix it. And the reason why is that the methane producing uh, microbes use the hydrogen from the hydrogen producing bacteria to produce methane. That's their substrate. So when you want to hit those, you need to suppress their substrate, for example, the rifaximin, which is the hydrogen. And also you need to hit them as well, which would be, for example, uh, neomycin. So you want to double whammy them. You want to hit them uh, directly and also decrease the, uh, uh, the substrate that they need for, uh, for the production of methane. That's the time that I use two antibiotics, and that's the data that Marcus has uh, shown, uh, that uh, combination therapy is more uh, successful. So that's antibiotics. Mark, what about motility? We talked a little bit about the migra migrating motor complex, and you said how important it is that the gut's constantly clearing the bugs which inevitably get into it. What about trying to improve motility? Yeah, so motility is a, a big problem with these patients. And, and so even if we get rid of the overgrowth, there is in, in a large subset of these patients a propensity for the overgrowth to return in a period of time. It could be a month, it could be two years, but eventually it can return. And so what that's where we use diet. So we will treat first, eradicate the overgrowth, and then use diet to reduce the likelihood of recurrence. We use prokinetics to reduce the likelihood of recurrence. And even though the patient may come in with diarrhea, once the overgrowth is gone, the diarrhea is gone, we use agents like plucalipride or low-dose erythromycin, which is, has a motilin agonist effect, meaning it makes the migrating motor complex more pronounced. But we give these at night because the migrating motor complex occurs when you're not eating. And so I'm an empty stomach just before bedtime, and that usually prevents the overgrowth from coming back. Just before Tegasarod, which is a very prominent motility drug, was taken off the market here in the U.S. Now it's back, of course. But we did a study showing the effectiveness of nothing 
the effectiveness of a prokinetic as a low-dose erythromycin, and the even more effective serotonin agent, uh, tegacerod, which is similar to the new procalipride. And you could keep the overgrowth away for many, many months by doing this approach. So it's not for everybody, but it's an approach that if a patient has recurrent SIBO, that can keep it away for long-term. And again, it's part of the antibiotic stewardship is better to treat the cause, meaning the motility, than to keep giving antibiotics over and over again is another so your approach to these patients would be you treat them with rifaximin plus or minus neomycin depending upon the breath test profile you'd right. probably follow up with a fodmap modified fodmap diet afterwards and what about the pro the the, the prokinetics the motility drugs would you use those routinely or perhaps if patients come back a second time with recurrence well it would depend on the severity of the patient in one one aspect but Often, we, we wait for the recurrence. If the recurrence occurs a year from now, there's no point in needing a prokinetic for 365 days of the year. But if it comes back within a month or two, then the cost-benefit, the benefits of the patient become more obvious. I, I suppose another acronym which is causing uh, another cause of potential confusion is IMO, because I think just as Cebu is beginning to reach the level of consciousness of, of a lot of people, another intestinal dysbiosis is introduced. So Mark, tell us a little bit about IMO and how what, what the cause of that is and what, what differentiates it from SIBU in terms of its manif clinical manifestation, its symptoms and treatment. So just to give you a flavor of American College of Gastroenterology Board of Directors endorsed and solicited a SIBO guideline, which was created, and I was fortunate enough to be one of the authors on that, uh, because SIBO is now an accepted uh, uh, medical condition here in the United States, very well accepted. But it was very clear all along to me that, and, and to be honest, over 25 years, one of the challenges with breath testing to begin with is from its inception, the validation of breath test was not complete. It was incomplete. Uh, and one of the secondary stories of breath testing was the breath test, they introduced methane, but there was no reason to introduce methane. There was no science to say methane was important. And it wasn't until we started to examine methane and we found that methane is associated with constipation. And so even in a patient with constipation and bloating, the breath test becomes important if the breath test measures methane. Interestingly, methane is proportional. So the higher the methane, the more constipated the individual was. So this is really a sort of a cause and effect relationship that we've seen with methane. But the reason we had to change it from SIBO-methane to EMO is methanogens are not bacteria, they're archaea. So the B in SIBO is not, correct, not intellectually correct. And the methanogens can also harbor in the colon and not just the small intestine. So small intestine was not exactly correct either. So we instead changed it to intestinal, which means could be small or large intestine. Methanogen, which are archaea, they're not bacteria overgrowth and it's more scientifically correct for what we were uh, what what that organism represents but the optimism there is it's really only one bug that does this so now that we know the bug treatments will emerge quite rapidly we think on trying to deal with emo specifically ali i just want to come back to you you talked about man-made antibiotics there's a lot of interest in terms of natural antibiotics just tell us a little bit about other other things that people can eat which can possibly protect 
them against recurrence or even help manage their symptoms when they when they have Cebu. So one thing that I wanted to clarify, when, when we say man-made antibiotics, a lot of these antibiotics are naturally found in nature as well. So they are available and we just extract them. I mean, going back to Alexander Fleming, the penicillin, the good old uh, penicillin. Uh, so the a lot of antibiotics that we use as prescription drugs are already available in nature. And these are compounds that plants use against the bacteria, other organisms use against other organisms. So they are out there. What is also out there as well are plant-based uh, antibiotics that are and not necessarily gone through uh, the synthetic process as the prescription drugs. And these are, uh, these have been shown in multiple uh, compounds, for example, in peppermint, uh, in neem, in uh, oil of oregano, uh, in curcumin, and they have a weak antibiotic uh, effects. Uh, so there are some retrospective studies that show that they are effective uh, in the setting of viral overgrowth, uh, for example, Having said that, the uh, the efficacy of them is yet to be determined in randomized controlled trial. So it, they can be used, especially in a mild uh, disease. So I would uh, strongly advise uh, to uh, ask uh, the help of a somebody that knows uh, about these herbal antibiotics, a naturopathic doctor or a functional uh, doctor about that. But another uh, important thing uh, to understand is that a lot of uh, these compounds, the safety of them and long-term effect and drug-to-drug uh, interaction is not well described. Uh, so if they should be vigilant about those potential parts that can uh, happen. The final question then on antibiotics, Mark, I mean, I very often get asked in patients when we're having this discussion and they say, well, I was under the impression that my gut biome was really important to me. I'm going to take all these antibiotics. Aren't I just going to napalm my, my gut? Uh, how does treatment of Cebu affect all those bugs that we rely on in our colon? Well, uh, you know, Cebu is an overabundance of Klebsiella and E. coli. That's now clear from studies last year. So we now know the characters that don't belong, shouldn't be that high in number, and are opportunistic. So we're essentially correcting the microbiome, not damaging the microbiome. And in the case of rifaximin, because of the stewardship that approach we took, we actually studied rifaximin. Up to three treatments did not change the colonic normal flora. So you don't need to take a probiotic after, after rifaximin. And, but this is the reason why we shy away from the older routine of antibiotics. Blind use of antibiotics, such as metronidazole, which doesn't work well either, I mean, they, they have dramatic effects on the colonic flora. So I would really, you know, caution against empiric therapy because of that reason. So we've nearly reached the end now. I just want to touch on two more questions. Firstly, we talked about hydrogen. We talked a lot about methane. You mentioned sulfide a little bit earlier on. Um, Anthony, can I just come to you in terms of testing? We know that some... Uh, of the bugs in the gut which are responsible for Cebu don't produce hydrogen or methane but might produce sulfide. How do we go about testing for that? Um, well, in the UK, we don't. And, and thankfully, Mark and, and his team have, have come up with a method of doing this in, in the US. But um, the way we do it at the moment is that when you have a hydrogen sulfide predominant patient, then you tend to get what's called a flat line response. So 
the hydrogen sulfide bacteria tend to outcompete for the, the hydrogen. Um, it's not always the case, but uh, we have that pleasant conversation with patients about malodorous flatulence <laughs> because hydrogen sulfide is, uh, you know, very eggy. So these people almost um, exclusively have diarrhea, malodorous flatulence, possible flatline on, on hydrogen. Uh, and, and at the moment, we don't have any tests in the UK to look for hydrogen sulfide. But um, uh, I think Mark might be able to tell us about the, uh, the test that he's developed. Yeah, Mark. So, Mark, when are we going to get that th this test in the UK? Oh, as soon as possible. No, I, I, I wish. Uh, you know, it just, it just, it's all a matter of timing, and uh, it just rolled out in the U.S. So, you know, part of the reason there's controversy about breath testing is because we were, we always had an incomplete picture and an incomplete understanding of each individual gas. There are only three gases, four if you include CO2, but that humans produce that. Three gases that distinguish humans from bacteria. Hydrogen, methane, and hydrogen sulfide. And we weren't able to measure hydrogen sulfide. The other thing that sort of frustrated some of the scientists that are, you know, more stubborn about the SIBO approach is you could never correlate hydrogen with diarrhea. Thankfully now, methane correlates with constipation. But because we were missing hydrogen sulfide, hydrogen sulfide correlates with diarrhea. So measuring all three gases really completes the picture and hopefully as this unfolds will complete the picture for those who are still sort of negative on breath testing because it will actually provide the full spectrum of what's going on hydrogen sulfide is not as common as hydrogen or methane but when it's present you have to treat it and we think that's going to require a different treatment in fact you know to sort of summarize you know what we've talked about in the last hour or so is you know Knowing the breath test, knowing what gas you have, is going to dictate in the future what diet you use, what antibiotic you might use, and why you are experiencing what you're experiencing. And so, you know, in terms of uh, what we now call precision medicine or uh, trying to use a test to figure out a patient and then stratify their therapy, you know, breath testing is getting closer and closer to, the, you know, the finale of, of what's going on. The picture is becoming clearer. It's uh, filling in all those dots, isn't it? Um, but the, as I said at the beginning, there's still probably more unknown than is known. So let's just finish by asking ourselves in five or 10 years time where where we think we'll be. What would be the, the sort of holy grail? So, Anthony, if I can start with you as somebody who spends their time trying to test and work out uh, exactly what is wrong with people. What would be your your vision for five or ten years from now? Well, I think um, Ali touched on this um, that you know the gases are important, but um, also the chemicals that are produced also seem to be um, important. And I'm thinking in particular things like short chain fatty acids, but also you know there's probably thousands of compounds that are swilling around the colon that may be contributing. And we're just entering uh, at Functional Gut. We're just entering a collaboration with a company called Alstone Medical in Cambridge, which is near where I live. And they have quite advanced technology to looking at volatile organic compounds, which are a, a whole witch's brew of, of things that are swilling around in the colon and that can be exhaled through the breath. So looking at non-invasive measures of all these different chemicals, it's a bit of a needle in a haystack. But um, we think that that might be a way of, of maybe answering some more detailed questions beyond that. So that's what we're going to be focusing on for the next few years. And Ali, as a, as a scientist, you know, who spends your life trying to work out the the mechanisms and treatment for these patients what's your, where, what, what do you 
think five or ten years? What's your vision? So uh, our vision uh, is essentially to individualize management of bacterial overgrowth, just like any part of medicine that is going. And uh, and in fact, in GI, we're uh, lagging behind other specialties. Uh, we need biomarkers uh, now, whether these biomarkers are in the breath, in the blood, or in the uh, small bowel contents. We need these biomarkers to kind of uh, go towards the realm of precision medicine for patients. So based on those, we can clear out which patient responds to what uh, treatment. And and to me, uh, that's uh, the ultimate way of uh, managing patients and staying away from uh, empiric therapy in uh, IBS patients, which and SIBO patients, which I think it's uh, not an acceptable endpoint in uh, 2021. And Mark, if I can can give the last word to you, I mean, you've done more than anybody in the world, I think, to push forward the agenda of the science behind uh, SIBO, but also education and trying to uh, get the word out there that there are a lot of people out there who for whom there's good tests and treatment, but they don't really seem to have access to them. And, you know, putting aside the science, what's your, what would you say your vision would be for um, education uh, of the public and, and, and of clinicians? Well, you know, I think the challenge of 2021 is sound bites. You know, we live in a world where information comes across our desk infinitely frequently in infinitely smaller bits of information. And, and to be frank, doctors have a hard time keeping up with the infinite bits of information. And so in the context of IBS or SIBO, I mean, there, it, what we had found in the U.S. was it was just under education. Uh, and, and you have to be willing to sit at a table and understand what's going on with SIBO. And then it makes a lot of sense. And so I, I, I'd like to think that the future is that we can educate more people around this topic, that they understand it. My answer is not the right answer. Science is the right answer. So I often say science is a regression to the truth uh, because as data come in, the truth always comes out. So you may have a theory, I may have a theory, but eventually one of those theories is right and one of those theories is wrong, and that's how it works. And I don't care really what the theory is. I just like to see the suffering of these patients improve. And as we continue to understand the microbiome, I think it will. Well, fabulous. Thank you all three uh, for a fascinating discussion. Um, We're very grateful to you. and, And I think that was great. Many thanks.